fellow movie lovers, and welcome to Cult Fiction, a podcast where we examine Hollywood's redheaded stepchildren. As a redheaded stepchild myself, I'm Stephanie Johnson. And I'm Andy Boyle, and today we are pulling back Hollywood's script to review the 2006 indie romance comedy existential question that is Wrist Cutters, a love story. When there is trap set up for you in every corner of this town and so you learn the only way to go is underground it's so beautiful and you were obsessed when we were watching this strangely beautiful very very like i i say strangely because the movie as the sum of its parts shouldn't be as lovely mm-hmm. as I think it is. Mm-hmm. Um, but it is incredibly lovely. And and I think we were talking about this was for a while, a favorite film of a close friend of the both of ours. Mm-hmm. And I had never seen it, but yeah, when we watched the movie, I was all in. And I think as soon as it ended, I was like, if I had seen that, Mm-hmm. August of my sophomore year of high school. Yeah. It would have been my personality for the entire year. Oh, you mean how my personality, like how my personality became Moulin Rouge because I saw it way too much into me being 16 and it became my personality? Yes, absolutely. <laughs> like there were kids in my high school who made Repo the Genetic Opera their entire personality. Sure. And like. We probably all would have gotten along watching this movie together. Well, so this is um, our friends like put on in the background when he's just doing stuff movie. Mm. So like he knows it that well. And it's because we're dancing around it. Wrist Cutters is a really beautiful and complicated movie about suicide. So it follows main characters through their journey through a purgatory that's specifically reserved for suicidal people. Mm -hmm. So just all that to say, the idea of having this on as your background movie is just really lovely and paints a very specific portrait. Absolutely. And again, like some of its parts, yes, it is very much a movie about suicide. It is a movie about death. It is a movie about afterlife. And it is a movie about love and romance and familial bonding through all of these other dark things. And it's the love and goodness, I think you could argue that wins out, or at least the movie is arguing wins out yeah which is what just it 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 draws you in so well well and i think it's one of you said after we finished it's the darkest comedy we've ever watched i wonder if it is i mean mild will vary on blood for dracula but (laughs) i don't think blood for dracula is a comedy i think we were laughing because we were nervous sure yeah And I was laughing because I was slowly watching my sanity leak out of my ears. You know, like you do. But 
For those of you who missed the movie, Risk Cutters follows Zia in his journey through a purgatory, like I said, reserved for the suicidal. And joining him are wild drunkard Eugene and Mikhail, a young woman bent on meeting the people in charge. In Eugene's forever cursed car, the trio ride across the afterlife, all to discover it's not as permanent as they thought. And there's a lot. There's, there's a lot in there. <laughs> there's there's a lot in there. There's so much I could talk about and we will end up talking about. But I want to start from the very opening scene, which is a still living Zia mm-hmm. meticulously, almost neurotically cleaning his bathroom mm-hmm. before slashing his wrists mm-hmm. and dying. Mm-hmm. And they make it a like two minute sequence of him just cleaning and pat and, and like fade out to him cleaning a different part of the apartment and clean out to him di- different part of the apartment. Yeah. That's such a vibe. <laughs> There's a short story uh, by Garrett Sokol um, where the main character talks about uh, canceling all their magazine subscriptions and getting rid of all of their underwear mm. because they're like, I don't want someone knowing that I read trashy magazines and rooting through my underwear drawer. And I kind of feel like it's a version of that where he's like, well, whoever finds me, God, I don't want them to see the mess I live in. <laughs> right. Which just the, the mind bendingly, I, the mind bending irony of, well, they're going to find me in a pool of my lifeblood, but I, I don't want the like mirror to be messy. I don't want them to see my pop zit excrement sitting on the mirror. That's too gross. It's very much, it's just very, this very committed, like, it says so much about Zia's character. And I think he's talking over, like, the first couple minutes, but, like, Mm -hmm. that scene is mostly silent. And it says so much about Zia's character without saying anything. It tells us so much about who this guy is. This is a very particular kind of person who's going to make sure his apartment looks nice as he's killing himself. Yeah. And the final moment where he sees this giant dust bunny in the corner he missed and it just says, oh, the best, the best laid plans of mice and men. I'm dead now. As I fade out into the oblivion, unknowing. The last thing I'm confronted with is my own failure and disappointment in self for a task. <laughs> oh, boy. But then we don't even like see his body being discovered because what Zia is, his soul, his consciousness, you know, basically wakes up in this new existence. Mm-hmm. And we, we don't even see the moment where he wakes up. We get the voiceover of him like, yeah, so I've, I've been here for a few months now and, and here's what's up. And we immediately get this table setting of what I've got to say, this isn't my Oscar, but this is one of my most favorite depictions of an afterlife we've seen on this show since, like, Enter the Void. Yeah, I'm with you for that, because it's, I was saying it really bothers me so much that 
the lighting is so grainy and it feels so like homemade and dark and I don't know why I didn't put two and two together but thank god I have you <laughs> and you were like well but that follows the stereotype of this afterlife where everything is just a little bit broken everything is just kind of shitty like just slightly inconveniently yeah. shitty which again, it, it's it's a stroke of genius because it's purgatory. Yeah, this is not heaven. This is not a good quote unquote place for you to have your eternal soul rest. But at the same time, it's not hell. Mm-hmm. It's not meant to be, you know, no exit and you're stuck in a hotel room with two people you hate for the rest of your life. It's not so aggressively bad that it's a problem, but it's not good enough that you're like, well, this is, you know what? No, this is good. The most you can do is just be like, I can work with this. It's fine. This is fine, which is such a mirror to real life for so many people. What I think it's interesting because all of these people commit suicide because they have decided life is not fine enough. Mm -hmm. They are done with living. They can't make peace with their current existence. And then they are put in a place where they are forced to make peace with something being inconvenient. Zia, did you finish my cottage cheese? Calm down, Eric. I'll buy you some more cottage cheese. That's not the point. I was planning on having some right now. Every moment of every day. Right. And I'd like to say, you know, it always sounds like I'm reading the In Case You Missed It. For this movie, I had to read the In Case You Missed It because there are so many rich details that finding the grand arc of this movie should be really easy, but it's not because there's so much... Like you put it, table dressing. Like there's an entire scene where Zia has a whole other roommate that we see for the first five minutes of the movie, never see again. But he's also great because he makes a big deal about like Zia stealing his yogurt. Yeah. And it's like those are the really specific details that make this movie. Right, exactly. And and to your point, like this is a film where in case you missed it, like, yes the very nature of this film will make it unpleasant to people who are especially sensitive to depictions of self-harm and suicide. And that's a completely valid and fair. That said, if you are not somebody who is more sensitive to that sort of thing, I think this is a really incredible film to watch because it, it has this, this beauty and, and tapestry and all, like you say, all the tiny little details, the, the ennui of the first 20 minutes that just overtakes everything. And the city they live in is fascinating because it just everywhere is like, oh, the bad part of town by the docks. Every part of city you go to is like, oh, yeah, that's the really chintzy store that, like, nobody actually goes into. Oh, that's the pizza place that, like, serves half-cold pizza and has one arcade game in the back. But it's, like, it's what we're doing. Mm-hmm. 
Oh, the apartment is like too small. You have a roommate who is like a pleasant enough guy, except he is constantly like on your case about food. And meanwhile, for that roommate, he is in an apartment where his roommate is a decent enough guy, but is always like not abiding by the food rules. Again, it's just all these little tiny little, it's not even like a needle in your leg. It's just like, oh, I fell asleep on my foot. It's like having a pebble in your shoe that you can't find. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And we have moments of pleasantness. So Zia comes to meet a character named Eugene and Eugene's entire family committed suicide. So Mm -hmm. the mom started the suicide train, so to speak, and the rest of Eugene's family committed suicide and they have, you know, they all live together in a tiny cramped apartment, but they have nightly dinners together. And Eugene has a line about how, like, as a familial unit, they are so much closer and happier now Mm -hmm. than they were in life. Because what else are you going to do except bury the hatchet and have dinner together and, like, make nice? Yeah, and I, I remember being really torn by it because on the one hand, it's really dreadful that the entire family committed suicide and they're just here together in a sardine can. But at the same time, it's like, well, we've got each other for the rest of eternity. And I think that duality and the way that it it presents just enough where like you, listener, you, watcher of the film, if you are like coming to this with any amount of curiosity and buy-in, immediately start grappling and having that question be like something that you are going to wrestle with for a while. There are two minor characters, a pair of mechanics, who are shown in a flashback that they like committed suicide together and there's a very clear implication that they were like lovers who were you know not allowed to be in their initial life and now they can be in the shitty mechanic shop that like doesn't have any actual parts that can fix anything but like there are so many snapshots that in their own regard and and Eugene's family most of all I think would be a really good short college film Mm -hmm. like one where you're like oh that guy's gonna go on to make actual movies Mm -hmm. and they're just thrown in and they they are mostly tangential to the actual journey we go on in the film and this movie has so much to set up so even um, the people you see throughout the movie, they look like the way they've killed themselves. Mm-hmm. So some people are more pale. Some people have massive bullet holes. Yeah. Um, but the f- it's not done in a gory way. It's done in a like matter of fact. This is how life is. Right. There's yeah. like there's one dude who I think like drove his car into the train tracks or something, and he's fairly mangled. But other than that, like the most gore you really get are pools of red water of some kind. It's giving pushing daisies, but dark. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. And at the same time, 
This also has an energy all its own. And it gives me big breakfast club energy, and I don't know why. <laughs> okay, yeah, so you, you wrote this down. You wrote that this gave big breakfast club energy, and you can't explain it. And I, I that is not a thought I had until I read your note, but I think I can. Okay, explain it to me then. Because both of those movies are about, like, accepting yourself and those around you for what they are. <laughs> dealing with the ennui of your situation because what is purgatory for a high schooler if not a weekend detention um and overcoming that surrounding and like reclaiming your own sense of enjoyment and purpose and and peace with oneself yeah no those those themes are overlapping in those two movies yeah okay i get it you're brilliant when <laughs> you do this like for a podcast oh you know someone should give you a show no that makes sense because it's literally you're trapped here so you're gonna do with it what you will you're trapped here you're stuck here it's it's a little less we're going to do all the high school tropes by necessity, but it still yeah. manages to do tropes. Mikkel is a bit of a manic pixie dream girl. Zia yeah. is a bit of a milk toast schlub insert blank faced cardboard white dude here who like learns to be a real person eugene is like stereotypical best friend mm -hmm. like can be kind of an asshole can be much more of an asshole than the main character mm -hmm. but is also like maybe the funniest of the characters and like clearly has his own thing going on but is completely to the side of like our hero and heroine yeah, drives a shitty car. My favorite examples of the extreme shittiness of the world fall into Eugene's car. Sure. Because he has a portal underneath his passenger seat where everything just disappears. And he also has his lights that won't work. Right. The lights in the car will not work no matter what. <laughs> And and so two thoughts real quick. The first thought, it's the port it's the black hole interdimensional portal under his seat for me that has me sitting here going, is this the most original script we've seen since being John Malkovich? It reminds me a lot of that. It has yeah. very um being John Malkovich energy just with like Oh, yeah, no, the plot of our movie is we are in the, like, stylistic purgatory, and it's this road trip across the American Southwest find my lost love thing. But, oh, yeah, also, like, everybody's dead, and there's a couple of cults, and there's a black hole under the sea. <laughs> but then the lights, yeah, the lights are the most... Like, the movie makes it on purpose. The lights are the most heavily heavily commented on, like, shitty thing. Mm -hmm. The car 
is is fine. It's it's as good as your 16-year-old friend's really beat up car that still got you where you needed to go and you were grateful for it because you were 16. But the headlights don't work, so you can't drive at night. Mm-hmm. And the film makes use of that so wonderfully with introducing Mikkel, yeah. who they just bump into like on the side of the road. I think, yeah, literally they, they pick her up from hitchhiking if I remember right. Mm-hmm. Um, and take her on a road trip and, and learn that her whole journey is that she doesn't feel like she is supposed to be here. She did not intentionally kill herself. There's been a mistake. I need to talk to whatever higher powers in charge. They go off, they do all this and Mikkel fixes their lights. By like kicking the car, right? By like kicking car, but like how matters so much less to me as the fact that Mikkel, who from a, a meta script sense is very clearly supposed to be the person Zia is going to fall in love with. Yeah. Instead of his equally random white, oh, it's that girl, blonde, cardboard, milk toast, shitty girlfriend whom he is searching for. Mm-hmm. I am pretty new. Actually, I've been hitchhiking ever since I got here. How come? Because I'm looking for the people in charge. They very clearly set it up that it's supposed to be Mikhail, and she fixes the thing. She is the first instance in the film of something shitty being made less shitty. She is the only thing improving her surroundings and the surroundings of those around her which is like a bright, saturated breath of fresh air. Well, now that you say that, she's also the one who, when she knocks um, Eugene's sunglasses underneath the seat, she buys Eugene new sunglasses just because she wants to. She's the first one to discover miracles when they get to the part of... The town where I guess like the veil is thin and or the people in white are like, okay, we have to have the town be not shitty in this section. The people in white being the people in charge, because come to find out the people in charge are basically just moonlighting around parading as a cult so they can get away with being obtuse. Right. Yeah. But Shannon Sossaman, who plays Mikhail, the moment I saw her in watching this movie was the moment I was like, okay, you're our heroine. Yeah. Because Shannon Sossaman had, like, a moment in the early 2000s. She was in this. She was in A Knight's Tale. She was in The Rules of Attraction. She was, like, the person you wanted for your manic pixie dream girl in the early 2000s. It's it's that she has a very clear moment, but it seems like that kind of did end yeah. that makes her moment all the brighter but yeah i mean it's it's shannon sossaman who's on the cover of the film not leslie bibb yeah you know it's 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 telegraphed to us the audience very clearly that like she is going to be a main character and important to us and probably the love interest she's holding hands with patrick fugit on the cover of the box like but the dramatic irony of the characters not knowing that yeah is delicious well plus she has a big fat cock 
<laughs> do you want to do you want to give your quote now? I don't have one, so go ahead. We're not I'm not going to make it a segment, but that that deserves some explanation. Uh, not Shannon Sossaman, the character of Mick. Um, for some reason, our road trippers are talking about cocks. Yeah. And Zia turns around and asks Mick, Mick, do you have a cock? And she said, oh, yeah, big fat one. And it's just like, this is the energy of stupid friends you go on a road trip with, yeah. where it's like you get in fights, you buy each other sunglasses, you sing someone's really shitty song that they recorded that one time over and over and over again until you know the words. Yeah, there's there's a like 15 minute chunk in the early middle of this film, which is just a road trip movie. Yeah. Forget everything else. It's just a road trip movie and a delightful road trip movie at that. And like everybody going to the bathroom, but like the guys kind of like making sure that like when Mikhail's going to the bathroom on the side of the road, they're like bodyguarding and like making sure to look away and, and just shit. Like they very clearly all get close. And again, like we're in purgatory. Time has no concept. We don't ever really get an idea of how long they're just driving back and forth across this random outskirt desert town there's so many things in purgatory that don't make any sense we see a shop but we never see money being exchanged once somebody has a job zia has a job in the pizza place but there's never any like question of payment or he doesn't need to make rent on his shitty purgatory apartment nobody eats i think i, th I think they sit down to dinner mm -hmm. but like Food equally never actually seems to be an issue. I think Mick gets gum. Yeah. I'm sorry. I think I'm mispronouncing your name. I think they shorten it to Mike. Right. It, it, it's spelled M-I-K-A-L. So Michael, Mikael, Mikael. I will say her character and how she is treated is a good chunk of how this movie didn't age well. We have a <laughs> lot of unconsented to advances on Mikhail. Uh, we have a lot of kissing her without her consent. Mm. There's a cat. Eugene casually assaults her at one point and just never talked about. Not really. Mm, sure, sure. Nanook, uh, who we meet later, uh, be who becomes Eugene's girlfriend, when we are introduced to her character, she is stereotyped as from Alaska or wherever. Which the name Nanook, period. Mm -hmm. Calling back to Nanook of the North, the like stereotypical Alaskan Tarzan folk character. Yeah, it's not great. There's also some casual use of the R word. There's casual use of the R word. There's casual post 9-11 jingoism. Like, there's a scene where there's one guy, and he's, if not the only person of color in the film, he's, like, one of three, and nobody actually gets any lines now that I'm thinking about it. Yikes. Um, who is a, like, 
it's not clear if he's an Arabic man or an Arab American man or what the deal is, but he's, first of all, he's driving a taxi around Purgatory. Mm. And they do like have an exchange. And it's one of those things where like you sit there and go, okay, I think they're trying to be shitty on purpose so that the main character can be a good guy about this. But like they do go into like some, oh, he's a terrorist. Oh, like he probably got here and was expecting 72 virgins like stuff that makes you go oh all right okay this this is 2006 this is still w administration yeah there is it's definitely um i think the movie did a lot of deep thought about afterlife and morality but i think we can still see that it's a movie of its time yes yeah it it definitely has its flaws but it also has some incredible highs to the point where i'm actually really surprised to learn that croatian writer director goran dukic hasn't really done anything like he's he he has done a few things like he mm. he did a, a TV show in Croatia. He had some movie come out in 2019, but like as much of a flash in the pan hit as that was, I would at least expect that that would lead to some sort of traction in Hollywood. Yeah. Unless he didn't want it. Unless he's one of those artists who decides, I'm going to make a few beautiful things. Yeah, sure. And be very content with that. And this is a beautiful thing, made all the more beautiful by one of cult fiction's uber crushes, the inimitable Tom Waits. Oh, he's so beautiful. He's so beautiful. If we had a nickel for every movie that just started with a Tom Waits song, we'd have two nickels, (laughs) which isn't a lot, but it's funny that it happened twice. (laughs) The first time you actually see the character, he's just like casually resting in the middle of the road, which again, they're in purgatory. So like it doesn't have the same stakes, but just for us, the viewer, to see this dude like cross one leg crossed over the other head in his hands, just like taking a nap in the middle of the road and causes a minor car crash because of it is like mwah, such a vibe. I uh, lost my dog and I'm just sick about it. You know, I haven't seen a dog. His name's Freddy. You thought you'd look for him while laying in the middle of the road. Well, I had to take a break. I mean, He's, and he's everything in this movie because he's kind of a quasi-cult leader. Yeah, he's presented, he's presented as a cult leader. Absolutely. To the point where I was sitting here thinking that, like, the twist would be that, like, oh, he is going to have some sort of villainous turn at the end. And, the opposite. But it's the opposite, because, spoiler alert, he is one of the not-angels but people in white, people in charge. He is the the dude who's like a sleeper agent, kind of just sheltering lost souls around and putting them in a relatively more comfortable place than everyone else. Mm-hmm. And I kind of wanted to see him 
get in a turf war with the other cult leader. And that's the thing. There's another cult, which is an actual cult, a real cult in purgatory. <laughs> I love that detail. That's so brilliant to me. The idea that, like, in purgatory, you... Yeah, of course there would be a cult. <laughs> and if you do this and you just say these five prayers and you have sex with this one guy who everyone's having sex with five times, you will get out of here and you will ascend to a higher plane. So that guy is played by a people know his name now, Will Arnett, like th season three Arrested Development, Will Arnett. <laughs> slumming it i guess or maybe not slumming it because it's a very lovely movie but like read the script and was like oh yeah you don't need to pay me it's fine he and tom wakes got together and went okay whose voice is more deep and beautiful is it me will arnett or is it me tom wakes i was about to say one is more deep the other is logically more beautiful <laughs> You could put Tom Waits's voice in an industrial grade. They use it to cremate people's bodies uh, and bones blender, and it would still come out gravel. Yes, absolutely. Because it's just that chonk. Meanwhile, if you put Will Arnett's voice in there, you would maybe get Tom Waits's voice. I feel like you would actually get Alec Baldwin. Oh, interesting. See, I, I feel like Alec Baldwin is a more smoothed, polished Will Arnett. It's a little higher in the register. Oh, interesting. We'll study up on this. Indeed. <laughs> we'll come back with a report. <laughs> so our trio of road trippers get to the section of the town where there can be miracles and where there's a cult turf war. And everyone but Zia can do a miracle. Right. And he's so upset with it, he literally has a stress dream about it. He has a stress dream in Purgatory where, in theory, he hasn't had stress dreams up until this point. Yes. But talk to me about Zia's stress dream. Because it's time for our long-lost segment, Stephanie Interprets a Dream. Perfect. I mean... To be fair, it's been a minute since we've seen a dream in a movie that wasn't, like, I think Excalibur. The last time I remember us talking about dream interpretation on the show was in Brazil. Mm, okay. When we had cages and giant monsters. Indeed. So but now we have... Now we have Zia, who dreams that he and Mick and Eugene are breaking out of jail... And there is a big deal made of them, Eugene and Mick, being able to climb. And Neller asks Zia to float up. Mm -hmm. And then the camera pans up and there's nothing but, like, glass and barbed wire. And Zia's like, I don't know how to get up there. And then we see Zia's parents and his dog and they're very upset, and they ask him why he hasn't called yet. <laughs> sure. So, my interpretation. Because this happens after Zia discovers there's miracles in the world, and he can't do one. Mm -hmm. So he's upset that, like, he can't perform miracles, he can't escape, 
He literally cannot float out of his current situation. He's stuck there. And he's looking for Desiree with no hints, no clues. He can't do anything without getting hurt, hence the barbed wire. Sure. And he does feel bad about leaving his family behind. But he also doesn't quite feel committed to his relationship with them because in the order of importance in the dream, first comes him trying to climb up a wall and then his family is just kind of like an afterthought. Right. And I mean, I I am nowhere near on the same level as you when it comes to this, but even I can sit here and go, it means something when you're ostensibly a dead person and you dream about your family and it's not dreaming about their reaction to your mourning but or, or their mourning but it's them being like you're inconveniencing us even i can read into that one you haven't called us instead of you died we're so sorry we miss you yeah. it's why haven't you called <laughs> which it just it feels indicative of the relationship of we don't even care about you. We care about your social obligation to us. Right. Also indicative of the purgatory conceit. Mm-hmm. We don't care about you. We care about what you could be. Yeah. It's the shittier version. Yeah, absolutely. Hmm. Hmm. Zia and the... Miracle subplot mm-hmm. feels kind of thrown in. Like, I feel like I needed two more minutes of people talking about it. Mm-hmm. But it does manage to create a lovely moment because the whole point is you can do miracles, but they're very minor miracles. Yeah. You throw your match away and it floats up forever and, and becomes a star. And Zia cannot do one. Until after the climax of the film where he finds Leslie and immediately realizes or when he finds Leslie Bibbs character Desiree and he almost immediately realizes she was never actually worth his pursuing because she's all sleeping with Will Arnett in the cult and like bought into the cult. He has the moment where, like, from across a crowd, he's making eyes with Mick and trying to, like, telepathically signal to her, hey, I figured it out. You're the one I'm clearly supposed to be with and have this amazing chemistry with. Mm-hmm. And she's, like, not receiving this, which is not her fault. It's his fault for being an asshole sure. and not telling her in the first place finally gets what she's been looking for this whole time in that the the cult thing, which, by the way, Will Arnett's character kills himself in Purgatory, and that is never even touched on, but is one of those questions that, like, I could think about for the next 30 years. <laughs> a, character, a, 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 a being in Purgatory killed themselves. What happens then? I think they start over Maybe. Or do, is it Inception rules and they go down another level? How how often does somebody kill themselves in purgatory? Oh, I don't like it. <laughs> Regardless, 
Mikkel finally, Michael finally gets what she wants, which is a chance to talk to somebody in charge and have answers and seizes this opportunity and tells Zia, hey, I'll be right back. They just, they said they need to drive me five minutes down the road and then they'll tell me what's up and is never seen again. Right. And it's, it's the, the, the bad dramatic irony of he finally figured it out. He finally figured out what the audience was screaming at for the past half hour that clearly she's supposed to be the one he's with. She is gone. He he waits like all night for her to come back. She never does. And he finally like goes back to camp and that's when he can do a miracle. Yeah. And the movie even said, you know, it says it out loud when it doesn't matter anymore. Yeah. And he makes there be stars. Yeah. Because when Mick did her miracle, she let loose a match and it floated up into the sky and there was only one. And she said, the one thing that really bothers me about it here is that there's not stars. Right. So it's like, he makes there be more than one when she's already gone. Mm-hmm. Which is just... It, it, it hurts and such... It's a scab on your heart that you just want to pick at. Mm-hmm. And then... And then... So with that said, I, I, I want to talk about where our characters all end up, but I think it's appropriate. Actually, you know what? Who would you rather talk about first? Zian, Mikkel, or Eugene? Uh, Eugene just goes off and like gets to have the girl and moves to wherever they move to. And I love that. Eugene's entire overarching thing from, you know, the moment we see him in purgatory, Eugene has accepted, Eugene has adapted, Eugene and Eugene's family have found love, both familial and romantic, in purgatory. There is something so comforting to the idea that you can be in the dimension of lost souls and get a girlfriend. And hand pedal your way up to Alaska with a crank. Exactly. <laughs> so yes, yeah, Eugene is, is much more minor, but especially given what we're about to talk about, there is something so important to me that we have this instance of like true acceptance and that crooked tree is still there to this day growing strong and growing strange yeah i love that yeah i also love that what goes through zia's brain is all right well my people here are gone and are going off on their own I've inherited this car because my friend decided to go hand crank himself to Alaska or whatever. I'm gonna throw myself into the black hole. The black hole under the passenger seat and see what happens. Mm-hmm. And what happens is that he's spat out into a hospital room where Mikhail is just waking up from an overdose. Yes. But, but crucial missing detail. Crucial missing detail, go on. Zia throws himself into the hole and for a minute is just sitting in there with 
10 pairs of sunglasses and a cassette and flowers that he had gotten for Desiree that eventually he had thrown down in the hole in despair. And for a second, I'm sitting there like aghast at the TV, like, oh my God, did this man just commit himself to a true hellish purgatory of just floating forever in the sunken place? But we hear Neller, we hear Tom Waits, who has been revealed to us to be a not-angel, like, grab Zia's file and kind of, like, somehow know the situation. And he says a line that's like, man, it's good to have friends in high places, huh, buddy? And then Zia wakes up. Yeah. The implication being somehow Neller is able to affect that outcome. And also did in order to give them a second chance. Yeah. And they there they are. They wake up. They smile at each other, which I think is like one of the first times you see them smile. Yeah. In the whole movie. And the whole ending is just, okay, we have a second chance. Hopefully this one's better. And presumably it will be because we've had this great acceptance coma maybe mm-hmm. like to, to, to Zia's parents it'll be like oh you were in a three month coma right or is it three days or is it three days or is it three hours exactly it doesn't and, and it doesn't matter but the effect is still the same yeah it's very good it's very good it's it's the kind of movie that especially talking about it again like I'm sitting here like, oh, I could watch this again. I could watch this with, like, three other people who haven't seen it just to be able to get their takes on everything. I love watching movies for our show, and sometimes one of the things that I resent isn't the right word, but is occasionally hard, is that I don't just get to enjoy a movie. Mm, I'm always, like, taking notes. And because I had seen this movie before, I had a little bit more of of the pleasure of just, like, letting it wash over me, which was really nice. Sure. So. I love that for you. I will also say, quick reading rec, this is um, based on a short story by um, Edgar Karat called Neller's Happy Campers. Oh, okay. So I think that's why so much of the movie is focused on the miracle part, because I think that's the large portion of the short story. Knowing that, that absolutely, I can absolutely see the world where like the original core conceit was based around the Neller campsite Mm -hmm. and everything on either side was kind of built after the fact. Yeah, kind of like when you start a story and you're like, oh, wait, I need to pre-explain some things and post-explain some things. But the main point of the thing happens here. Who's to say? But is it cool? I absolutely think so, yeah. Okay. This is a film that I was hearing about tangentially since a little after it came out. Like, Mm -hmm. and it was always just like, oh, somebody online brings this up as like, oh my God, this is one of my favorite movies. Or like, 
I think my sister at one point, way, way too young now that I'm thinking about it, was like, oh my God, I love this movie. It's so dark and, and lovely and wonderful. And I'm like, okay. And then proceed to like not do anything. How old was she? How old were they? They were probably like 12, 13. Eh, that's old enough. I mean, old enough where I'm not surprised that they saw it, but like... <laughs> comparatively seeing it much later in life i'm like oh well i mean it's what i said if i had seen this as a 14 year old holy shit this would have been my personality for three months <laughs> and that's why it's cold because <laughs> you show this to the right teenager it absolutely imprints on them and like becomes a thing that they will always hold a special candle for in their mind um... going forward I mean, we, we talked about it. It's it's something that was, like, very clearly a labor of love. Um, I don't have the financial information in front of me, but, like, clearly not a lot. Yeah. It didn't make shit. Yeah. I mean, you can just tell. If it, if it did, like, Goran Dukic would be making a Marvel movie right now if this had gotten the attention it deserved. Um, very quotable. I said I didn't have a quote. That's I, I don't have a quote from the movie. There are several things, but one quote I, I just saw in my notes. Like I mentioned, there's a scene in which two people kill themselves in a hot tub. And like while we were watching the film, I said out loud, is that a hot tub full of wine? Oh, it's blood. <laughs> oh, Oh, and then there's also, there's a song that Eugene writes that plays on a cassette in the car mm -hmm. um, that you and I were singing for, like, the next week and a half. It is an absolute earworm, and the only reason, like, it's, you, you've heard it, listeners, because I absolutely played it at the beginning of this, like, episode, but <laughs> it is, it, it is a very, like, oh my god, this is stuck in my head, but I'm not mad about it kind of song. Absolutely. Yeah. You know who lives in my head rent-free, and I'm never mad about it? Besides Tom Waits. <laughs> oh. oh, wait, that's my head. <laughs> um, I mean, yes, Tom Waits, but also... But you were speaking of Kevin Bacon. I was obviously speaking of Kevin Bacon. Obviously. <laughs> obviously. <laughs> um... I would like to go first, if that's okay, because I'm quite proud of mine. Please. So Nick Offerman, who we didn't even talk about, mm -hmm. but Nick Offerman is very briefly in this movie, like pre-Parks and Rec, Nick yep. Offerman. Absolutely. Um, he was in Me, Earl, and the Dying Girl, which is actually a fantastic book, if you ever get the chance. That has been made into a movie, and I hear that movie often said, like, in the same list as risk cutters okay i know it's been made into a movie because nick offerman was in it with hugh jackman ah. and as we all know hugh jackman is in x-men with kevin bacon specifically x-men first class with kevin bacon <sighs> like okay. he, he is an x-men first class he he tells xavier and magneto to fuck off it's his one line in the movie and it's perfect that's his one line in the movie? Because the whole thing... Okay, listeners, in case you don't know, the whole thing about X-Men First Class is it's a prequel, and it's the one where you have James McAvoy and Michael Fassbender playing Xavier and Magneto, and it's set in the 60s as opposed to set in 2000, which is when 
X-Men 1 is set. And they're, they're, there's a whole montage of them recruiting the first class of mutants of the Xavier School. And Hugh Jackman is in one scene. And it's just, it's like one shot. It's him at a bar. And the two come up behind him and are like... Hello, Logan. We have a very we, we have an offer we'd like to talk to you about. And without like looking up from his beer, Hugh Jackman just goes, fuck off. And then it like cuts away. <laughs> because Wolverine's not in the first class. He's not introduced to the Xavier Institute until 2000. I know way too much about X-Men. Would you like to do your bacon now, Andy? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, I'm also proud of this bacon. Because I did it in one. God damn it. Because, and and I kind of gave it away a moment ago when I said who lives in my head rent-free. Because Tom Waits lives in my head rent-free, I remembered from our Down by Law episode realizing and discovering Tom Waits is in the movie Queen's Logic with Kevin Bacon. So any movie with Tom Waits, eventually we will watch The Imaginarium of Dr. Parnassus. And I'll probably forget then, too. And I won't. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's lovely. Also lovely, our Oscars. Our Oscars. You know what? I, I will give an Oscar to Tom Waits. This movie gets the Oscar for the second best Tom Waits deity. Oh, why? Who's your favorite? Tom Waits as the devil. Yeah. And the Vaginarium of Dr. Parnassus. Agreed. This is something Stephanie and I have talked about probably like 30 times off air. But like, we, I I feel like we're in agreement that Tom Waits' depiction of the devil Mm -hmm. in that movie is the greatest depiction of the devil in cinema. Of all time. Of all time. Hands down. Yes. For a while I thought it was Meet Joe Black, but then I remembered Meet Joe Black isn't the devil. He's just dead. Correct. He's death. (sighs) Same thing. I mean, death is dead. What's your Oscar, Andy? (laughs) My Oscar. We've talked around it. Hell, we've said half of their names. Uh, My Oscar for wrist cutters is most that guys because this is a film full of that guys oh it's that guy oh oh my god it's that guy i've seen that guy in a bunch of movies it's the guy in the thing yeah the one from that you know that movie the guy from the place and the stuff and the stuff oh he's really good in that tv show you know, the one where the guy does the thing? Yeah, exactly. But to that point, Shea Wiggum, who plays Eugene, is a that guy. Tom Waits is a that guy. Um, Zia's roommate, who's always talking about expired yogurt, is played by Abraham Ben Ruby, who is a that guy. The dude who is the mechanic is Mark Boone Jr., who is a that guy and is really good in Sons of Anarchy. Uh, Jake Busey is the one who tells Zia that, le- that his girlfriend killed himself. He's the one who, like laid down on the train tracks or something. Oh my god, it's Jake Busey. Um, Leslie Bibb, who I talked about, plays Desiree. Mary Pat Gleason, who is Eugene's mom, is an, oh my god, it's that girl, it's that lady. <laughs> and like we mentioned, a pre-Parks and Rec Nick Offerman. Oh my god, it's that guy. There are so many that guys. Probably one or two of them have like been on cult fiction before, except Tom Waits, and I just don't remember because they're that guys. 
Oh my gosh, this is my new favorite segment. Anytime we're going to forget an actor's name or what they're in, I'm just going to be like, you know, the guy from The Thing. That guy. I buy in on this, and I'm going to challenge myself to always be able to, like, have an answer. (laughs) You know who always has an answer? Carl's Jr. When you're always wanting to be a little bit more than that guy. Carl's Jr. They won't serve our burgers in purgatory. Because they're too good. <laughs> it's been a while since we've done a Carl's it Jr. Has been, so it it has that. been a while since we gave a free plug to Carl's Jr. <laughs> you know what it's not been a while since? Oh god, I don't know which segment we're on. It has not been a while since we picked a movie, because we do that on every episode of Cult Fiction. We sure do, friend. We sure do. Every episode of Cult Fiction, we put our hands into fate, a.k.a. the Hollywood crypt, through the application of a random number generator. Uh, The other day, I realized that, like, the cult movies stop around 2019, because by nature of the genre, like... It's very hard to know a cult movie until it's been out for a few years. That said, I don't remember what it is off the top of my head, but there's absolutely something that I was like, oh, that's a cult movie that I have since added to the list. So we have a list of 276 films, again, because I just added one. Sure. But out of that list of 276, we are going to be watching, next time on Cult Fiction... Number 228. And number 228 is... Do-do-do-do-do-do. Number 228. One black comedy to another. Next time on Cult Fiction, we will be watching the Danny DeVito, Edward Norton... Comedy? Death to Smoochie. This is a movie in which ostensibly a man tries to kill Barney, the dinosaur. Well, (laughs) that's all for this edition of Cult Fiction. If you want to keep up, you can follow us on Twitter at Cult Fiction Cast. You can also follow, rate, and review us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. We'll close the crypt for now, God help us. But join us next time when, oh my God, I just remembered this star's Robin Williams. (laughs) As we watch my favorite actor of like all time try to kill Barney the Dinosaur in 2002's Death to Smoochie. For Stephanie Johnson, I've been Andy Boel. (laughs) 